Thank you, Gary, and thank you, Nathan. Got to get used to seeing a ring on your finger, Nathan, there. <laughs> it's incredible. So good to have you both back, and they still are glowing and looking great. So uh, what a precious thing. So thank you both, Father and Son. And as we go now and continue our worship, Westmount, let us do so in prayer to our Father. Bow with me as we pray. Eternal Father, great is your name and worthy to be praised. You are the Almighty, the Lord God alone. Merciful God, indeed have mercy on us according to your steadfast love. Father, blot out our transgressions. Great God, wash us thoroughly from our iniquity. For we know, each one of us know, our transgressions. Our sin this week has been ever before us. We blame no one else for our sin. We claim and own our disobedience. No one else is responsible for our rebellion. It is ours alone. Against you and you only have we sinned. Before your eyes have we done what is evil in your sight. Great God, Merciful God, Lord and Father, purge us, clean us, wash us, make us white as snow. Let us hear joy and have gladness again. Create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew right spirits within us. Father, your desired sacrifice is a broken heart. So, Father, break us down. And build us up. Use us, mold us, shape us, spend us. Make us useful to further your kingdom and to proclaim our King, in whose name, whose matchless name, now we pray. Amen. Westmount, as we begin and we are endeavoring to do with this series, I just want to settle our hearts. As we start, and as you're grabbing your copy of God's Word, this morning, let us remind ourselves of one thing. Again, we need to remind ourselves of this all the time, but this morning, I want to remind us of this one thing, and it is this, that God is faithful. God is faithful. He is faithful all the time. Westmount, you can trust God. You can find rest in God because of this, because He never changes. God never changes. And that word that you're pulling out, that word that you have in your hand right now, that I ask you to put into your hand right now and to open, that word of God, Scripture, the Bible, it too never changes. I want you to look at that word in your lap. I want you to look at that word in a world surrounded by chaos. That word that you are holding right now is the same word that it was six months ago before chaos broke loose. Everything else has changed, but not the words in your lap. It's the same six years ago when I came to Westmount for the first time. We're still looking at the same book, aren't we? It never changes. And it was the same six, de six decades ago. Do you remember at another time of global crisis? Was the word any different back then? No. And that word, as you look at it in your hands, it will be the same tomorrow. No matter what you wake up to tomorrow, that word will never change. You, Westmount, can trust our Lord because as Hebrews 13, 8 says, he is the same yesterday and today and forever. In a constantly changing world, take refuge in a never changing God and in an eternally stamped word. I want you to take that eternal word in your hand now and open to Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18. The prophet Ezekiel, one of the major prophets, he's nestled between Jeremiah. In fact, Jeremiah's smaller book, Lamentations, it comes after that, and it's before Daniel. Open up to Ezekiel, who is nestled there, and specifically chapter 18. Ezekiel, by way of introduction is a book about judgment and justice. Judgment and justice. 
God used this prophet, in fact, to declare judgment, but he also, as he was declaring judgment, he used this prophet to define justice. And maybe the word justice makes your ears stand up in our times. A justice definition is what we need now, right? You've certainly heard that. What we need is justice defined. But we need God to define it for us. We need God's definition because everyone else, it certainly seems this way today, everyone else is defining justice today. Everybody has a definition for justice. I would submit to you it is indeed the order of the day. The demand for justice is this today. It's a demand for an apology. Years ago in a movement in the West, you remember, some of you remember, the rich, right? The rich corporate had to apologize to who? The poor, because of justice. In the name of justice, the rich, that group, had to apologize to the poor. Of course, that call really hasn't disappeared. That call, if you listen carefully, is growing again today, which is, for the oppressors, that would be the rich, the whole group must apologize to the poor. Last year, justice looked like this, in a movement that had been building for some time, men proper, had to apologize to women proper. If you were a man, you had to apologize to a woman. It didn't matter. You just apologized to all women. Men as a group, you heard this, you know it. Men as a group were the problem. Men are the problem. Men as a whole had to apologize to women. That was last year. Well, this year, in a movement we're in now, whites proper, whites proper must apologize to blacks proper. Whites as a group are the oppressors. Whites as a whole must, as one group, repent. Now, I want to be crystal clear this morning. Please, Westmount, please hear me. We recognize that behind many of those cries for justice, hear it, are real problems. Are there not? They're real problems. It's not what we're saying this morning that they're not. There are the poor, the woman, the black that are hurting. Those individuals are hurting. There is no question about that. Many individuals have been wronged, hurt, and sinned against. We affirm that, and we would say biblically, above all others, we affirm. Sin affects and it hurts. And those wrongs, as God himself states throughout his word, God says this over and over again, those wrongs need to be dealt with individually they need to be addressed. Does the word of God not say that? Look this week at ideas of repentance and restitution. We of all people stand up and say those wrongs must be righted. So that's not what we're saying this morning. In fact, we just follow the Lord in our agreement on that justice. However, <clears throat> what we're not saying this morning and what God is not saying, justice is not a matter of a particular group, a whole group, standing up and making a public statement. That's not justice. Justice is not a matter of defunding a group, flattening out a group, looking at a collective. Beloved, that is not justice. In fact, it leads to anarchy, as we've seen. God's word gives no instruction to do, here it is, hear the word, as you'll see it today, to do any such corporate thing. The Bible speaks not corporately of dealing with things, not at all, not at all. And that would be the fundamental reason why cries for corporate justice are not only off the mark, but they're way off the mark, way off the mark. That would be enough, but let me give you a couple more practical affirming reasons by way of introduction. Why corporate justice just simply misses the mark. Let me just give you two. There's many more we could say. Number one, corporate justice or a corporate apology is not effective. This is self-evident, is it not? It's not effective at all. During this pandemic, I was reading of a particular head of a food chain. He's well-known. He loves to interact with his people. Well, he sent out an email. We happen to be on a rewards point system, right? You've probably got the same thing. And what did he do? A corporate apology on behalf of all said employees for the way employees are interacting with their staff members. Lovely written, very eloquent, right? Well, lo and behold, a few days later, what happened? Another flare-up with one of the employees. 
Did that corporate apology do anything to right the wrongs? Absolutely nothing. Just days later, proven to be ineffective. So that's one. Corporate justice is simply ineffective. Number two, corporate justice, corporate apology is just not logical. It's not logical. Last year, I was watching a documentary on social justice, and again, uh, saw an interview with a white female, and then a, a little snapshot of a, a white man surrounded by black men, and they were both commenting on their whiteness. And in this particular documentary, both the white female and the white man went to great lengths to say this, I just repent of being white. I'm sorry that I'm white. I've been a racist my whole life, and I didn't even know that I was a racist. And I'm just so sorry for being white and things that I don't even know that I've done and all of this. And what struck me about these corporate apologies was this. I want you to picture the scene. White woman, white man, and there are these uh, black brothers and sisters in the room. Individuals, here it is, individuals in this documentary that clearly respected black people. They respected them. They loved them. Maybe their whole life they've never had an issue with a black person. And let's assume that they've never treated black people differently. And yet there they are on camera doing what? Apologizing for doing something that they likely haven't done. It's illogical. And that scenario is being called for over and over again. Hear me. The just apologizing for the unjust. The innocent saying sorry for the guilty. Beloved, let's anchor our logic this morning. I want to ask you a question. The victim. The victim. Who do they really want to hear sorry from? From a representation? A cardboard cutout? Someone who means well? Or do they want to hear sorry from the person that wronged them? It's illogical enough. But society has taken that vignette to a whole other level. It's not only the innocent apologizing just to the victims, but now today the calls are for the innocent to apologize to the innocent. So what we have today are descendants, generations downstream, being called to say sorry for things that their great-grandparents did and their great-grandchildren and so on. I want you to think with me of this scenario in today's court of law. Everyone's bickering, right? You know, maybe a little Capulets, Montague's going on in the courtroom, and then the judge comes in. All rise, judge stands. What's the case? Hate! Everyone just says, hate is the case. Okay, Mr. Smith, Mr. Jones, what are the charges? Well, Mr. Smith hates Mr. Jones. Okay, fair enough. We're going to, it's a hate trial. Well, what did Mr. Smith do? Well, he's a Smith. Okay, he's a Smith. What's the charge? Well, he's got grandparents. They lit fires and did things and put statues up. Oh, okay. What did he do? Well, he's a smith. Okay, Mr. Jones, what did Mr. Smith do to you? Well, nothing. But, you know, my grandparents were really hurt by other smiths. I want you to think for a moment. What would the judge say? I came in today to hear this. Two innocent grandchildren saying that there's a case. The judge would say what? Two innocent people. In fact, they don't even have the complete knowledge of the crime. The judge would say, I, I'm just throwing the case out because there is no case. There is no case. It's illogical. It has no basis. Now, that is enough practical evidence by way of introduction to demonstrate why demands for corporate justice and listen as well-intended as they are by some. We don't want to miss that. As well-intended as they may be, they're just not effective, and they're not logical. But that's not enough. We, we don't want to operate just on effectiveness and logic, right? We operate by what? This. What does God say justice is? That's what we want to know, Westmount, isn't it? Effectiveness and logic point to something that it turns out is really biblical. And that's where we turn now. There's more. Demands for corporate justice are not just wrong on a practical level. More importantly, they're wrong on God's level. The chapter that you have open in front of you is going to demonstrate this clearly today. Three ways, by declaration, by illustration, and by explanation. Let's begin with the first. It's found in the opening verses. Go to verse 1 of Ezekiel 18. The word of the Lord came to me. This is the prophet, Ezekiel. 
What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this is the Lord speaking through him now, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. There was, you see the proverb there, there was an ancient proverb, an ancient saying in ancient Israel that said, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. And you would say, what does that mean? Sounds very confounding. It sounds strange at first until we just stop and look closely at it. And I want us to consider it first. Look at the sour grapes. So the fathers munching on sour grapes, like all sour foods, what do they do? Sourness causes a reaction where? In your mouth, right? Just had sour grapes. It's as simple as that. And here, the response declared is that teeth would be set on edge. You eat sour food and your teeth is set on edge. The Hebrew expression behind that, by the way, literally means to become blunt or dull, right? There's an effect of that sourness on your teeth. In other words, you eat sour grapes and it has a negative effect on your teeth. And we get that whether by physical expression or acidity or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. The point is, here it is, a price is to be paid for having those grapes, right? This is not unlike those that don't like to have hot food. What do you hear? I don't have hot food because what? I'm going to pay the price later. This is the same kind of idea. If I have sour grapes, my teeth are going to pay the price. And here we get that, right? But here I want you to notice where the price is paid. The fathers eat the sour grapes, but who pays the price? The fathers eat the grapes, but the children's teeth are the ones to bear it. Do you see that? Children. That ancient proverbial saying, like many sayings we have today, had a point. It was a visual picture to prove a point. And it was simply this, that the father did something and the children paid for it. See that? The father does something, the children are going to pay for it. To God's people during the time of Ezekiel, this was precisely their thinking. They would have, the hearers of Ezekiel would have been nodding their heads and saying, oh yeah, that's right, here we are in exile, that's exactly right. And we're paying the price for what our forefathers did. Our forefathers sinned, they rebelled, and look, we're the ones in exile. We're paying for it. We are receiving exile and judgment. They ate sour grapes, our teeth are on edge. Now here is where we need to be clear I just want to make sure we're being clear. The proverb's not talking about effects, E. It's not talking about the effects that sin has. This proverb's not saying that there are downstream effects of sin, right? We talked about this on Wednesday night, that all sin has effects, right? The father that cheats on his wife, it's going to have effects on his marriage and his home and his community and his fear. We talked about that. That obvious truth we recognize, but that's not what's in view here. So what are we talking about? This, this proverb's not talking about the effects of sin, but here it is. It's talking about the judgment of sin. You see that? This is about the judgment. Who pays the price? Not who feels the effect. Who pays the price of that sin? Ezekiel's ancient hearers of this looked at the exile of the present generation and said, Our forefathers sinned, and now we are experiencing the judgment. Now, Westmount, just stop for a moment and consider that at face value with me. Generation A sins, generation B is judged. Generation A sins, generation B is judged. That is not only a disconnect, but what would that be? Generation A sins, generation B is judged. That would be injustice, right? In fact, it would be injustice of the highest order because there is not even a connective tissue there at all. Yet that thinking was not just prevalent back then, but beloved, can I submit to you, that is precisely the thinking you hear today. Generation A has sinned, and now generation B, you better pay for it. I think there's some confusion. Let me, I pray this is helpful this morning. I think there's confusion in effects and judgment. Without a doubt, the effects of our forefathers, right, are felt. But that's very different to judgment, of the sin. Much more I could say about that, but I digress. But we don't want to confuse the two because this text is not confusing the two. And certainly the language 
today, that you hear today, is not as pronounced or clear as that disconnect, but the idea is this. This is what I think you're hearing. We, this generation, are accountable. We are culpable for the sins of our fathers. You hear this. We must apologize for the sins of our fathers. You know, it's put often much more eloquent and emotional, but listen, no less wrong. God declares this. Look at verse 3. As I live, declares the Lord, and now the Lord God. Now listen, he's going to make a declaration of that kind of thinking. What does he say? This proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. I mean, that's clear. God banishes that proverb. God wipes away that thinking. He says it shall be used no more. Why? Continue in verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. That old saying, that wrong thinking, is to be done away with. It's a byword. Because all souls are mine, father and son. God says both those souls are accountable to me. They're both mine. It means that all souls, father and son, are under God, accountable to God. And that means, beloved, as you look at this text, that the son doesn't pay for dad. All mankind accountable to God does not mean that children are judged for their parents. No, God declares this justice. Again, look at verse 4. The soul who sins shall die. That means if you do it, you pay for it. You do it, you pay for it. It's as simple as that. God says, each man is righteous or unrighteous, lives or dies according to his own actions. Not because of heredity or name or the actions of someone else. Not at all. Lives and dies before God alone. By the way, this was not the same or some new or one-off declaration by God. This standard of justice is the spine of justice throughout all of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Works both ways. Each one, the word of God says, shall be put to death for his own sin. Individual responsibility. What about that standard? Remember King Amaziah? Do you remember when King Amaziah took power in 2 Kings 14? He went to quick work putting to death who? Putting to death the servants, right, that were treacherous against his father, King Joash. He put those men that directly killed his father to death. But you almost get this picture in 2 Kings 14. He's just doing the thing, and then he comes to the sons, and he stops. About to kill them, maybe, and then he stops. And this is the stated reason, 2 Kings 14, 6. Because those children, even though their daddies were not good, children shall not be put to death because of their fathers. That's the stated claim of King Amaziah pulling up short. Jeremiah, in his letter, after stating the sour grapes proverb, also says such incorrect standards of justice shall be no more. And then he directly refers to this ancient proverb. Jeremiah 31.30 says, Everyone shall die for his own iniquity. There it is, clear again. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth, not his children's, shall be set on edge. Jeremiah takes the proverb and states it the way that it should be. Eat sour grapes, your teeth will be on edge. And friends, that's not only God's definition of justice, but it is both, I hope you see this, it's both logical and it's effective. And consider that, friends, against the cries for justice today. Generations downstream crying out for justice even, and note this, I want you to see where this is coming from. Of course, we talked about this more Wednesday nights, but even after police officers are arrested, even after they up the charges, even after they burn down a police station, even after they defund the police, even after the citizens take over, even after all of that, right? It's this insatiable what? More, more, more justice, more. It's because it's illogical, it's ineffective. It's because, I would submit to you, underlying all of that, when you look at the masses today, they're actually subscribing to this proverb. The sins of today are actually not what's in view. Is that not right? It has nothing about 
it's nothing about today. It's the sins of yesterday. It's the sins of our fathers, our grandfathers, our founding fathers. Their sins, their statues, their systems. Who is going to pay for that? Well, the culture is clearly saying today, the children, us. We all must together, corporately. Corporate justice, that's what's needed. That's what's cried for. Hence, many of you in this room are guilty because of your skin, your lineage, your gender, and your affluence. You're guilty. Generations before you did the wrong, but generation, I'm sorry to tell you, you must apologize for it. But note here, loved ones, you hear many saying that today. You hear it today. In fact, you are being drowned out by that narrative today, are you not? But there's only one voice that's not saying that, and who is that? God. It's the only voice. He's the only one not joining in the chorus. And it's right here in God's word. Look at verse 4 again. Behold, all souls are mine. In other words, every generation. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins, that's who it is, the soul who sins shall die. God declares this justice, the soul who sins shall die. He alone is responsible. That's justice declared, but what about justice illustrated? God now turns to illustrate justice, and he does so. Here's your picture. He's going to give us three generations. He presents three generations, successive generations. A father... A son and a grandson. This is now, as you paint that picture, three successive generations that will be put before us. Let's look first at the father. We're going to be introduced to the father. He's in verse 9. If a man is righteous, so this father is righteous, and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. This man, look at him, this father is a righteous man. Verse 5 says this plainly, he does what is just and right. And what you have there, by the way, in verses 6 to 9, some of those things may sound a little strange to you, but really under the law, it outlines all the righteous things that a man could do. He's keeping all the tenets of the law. He's blameless, like Paul often said, under the law. He's not idolatrous. He's sexually pure. He's fair. He's honest. He's kind. He's generous. And hence, because of that, because of that demonstrated righteousness, verse 9 makes logical sense. Look at it. Verse 9, this man, this father, walks in God's statutes and keeps God's law, demonstrating his righteousness, his faith, so... As a result of that demonstration of, of faith within him, he shall surely live. That makes sense, right? That's obvious. Of course, that is just. That is right. We know that arithmetic. That's the father. But what of his son? So there you have a righteous man, generation one. But now we're going to be introduced to his son. Look at verse 10. So this righteous man, if he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends an interest and takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. So righteous man, generation A, fathers a son, generation B, and his son hardly follows in his footsteps, right? I mean, he can't be more opposite than his dad. The son is violent. The son is idolatrous, impure, oppressive, greedy, and he's also a thief. So does God look at generation B? Does God look down and say, well, that son, man, he comes from good stock, his dad was good, right? His dad was good. Does God say that father, actually, he stockpile enough righteousness? His silo's overflowing with righteousness? I think Generation B is going to be all right. 
No, look at what God says in verse 13. He, the violent son, has done all these abominations thus, this is God's reasoning, because of that, of what he has done, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. No mention at all about the father's righteousness. Certainly not to any degree protecting him. That's right. The son sinned, so the son dies. We get it. He's responsible for his own actions. God says he's not off the hook because of his righteous dad. In fact, God says he's squarely on the hook because of his own wickedness. That's what God says. So righteous father, wicked son. Quite a family so far, isn't it? But one more generation. Look at verse 14. Now suppose this man, so now we're in generation C, right? You have righteous, wicked, now what will the grandson be like? Verse 14, now suppose this man, the wicked man, fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother and did what is not good among his people. Behold, he shall die for his iniquity. That would be his father. Amazing. The wicked son, we see the same pattern now, proceeds to have a son himself. So you have these generations having sons, and then there's a particular type of behavior in this next generation, that grandson. And by the way, notice this in verse 14. He looks at his dad, right? When you see this in verse 14, suppose the man fathers a son and sees all the sins that his father has done, sees and does not do likewise. Let's just take a, a brief stop for a moment. That grandson is not bound to the sins of the fathers. Do you see that? He doesn't look at it and say, well, that's my DNA. If I broke a window, well, you can understand. That's it, right? He doesn't look at his dad and say, I want to be like him. He looks at his dad and he says, what? Wow, that's wicked. I don't want to be like him. There's nothing determined here at all. We just have to mention that this flies in the face of what you hear today. He breaks the mold. Yes, beloved, you can break the mold. We can break the mold. Only in Christ, I would submit, that we ultimately break the mold. But our fate is not determined by our parents, praise God. This grandson, like his grandfather, walks rightly under God's standards. Like his grandfather, note this, he is not idolatrous, but he is pure. He is fair and obedient. And does God say then, well, it doesn't matter how righteous the grandson is. Your dad was so bad, so you have to pay. I'm sorry. It doesn't matter how righteous you are. Does God say your dad didn't pay enough? He actually didn't pay enough. There is a debt, and you need to bear the guilt. Is that what God is saying here? No, nothing of the sort. No, look at the middle of verse 17. God says he shall not die for his father's iniquity. In fact, God says, end of verse 17, he shall surely live. What hope? What hope to the grandson with a wicked father? Is that not hope? You don't have to pay the price for what your dad did. In fact, even as you look at it and recognize that it's wickedness, you don't have to pay. More on that in a moment. Verse 17, he, that wicked or righteous grandson, he shall surely live. And that's right, as he should. So a righteous father does what is right, and God says he lives. He fathers a son who is wicked, and God says what? He dies. The wicked son fathers his own son and does what's right, and God says what? He lives. That is justice in God's eyes. Do you see that? That's individual, personal, accountable justice in God's eyes. Logical, effective, each one responsible for his own sin. No generation can look backwards or forwards, blame-shifting, looking for a free bass. You're accountable for your own sin. That's justice illustrated. Now, God explains his justice. Finally, justice explained. Justice explained. And an explanation is coming, friends, because there is a protest. Listen, protests are nothing new. Humanity loves to protest, especially when they're under authority. All the more, give me a protest. If I'm under authority, I need a protest. 
The creator, and here it is, the subordinate, the created here, does not like the creator's standard. Again, beloved, hear me, there is nothing new about protest. People do not like authority. Don't you dare tell me what to do. The created does not like the creator's standard. We talked about this before. So the clay, the molded, does what? Questions the potter. Why'd you make me like this? Why are you doing that? And so on. And I submit to you, Westmount, in today's climate, does that not sound familiar? And here with the justice you just saw God illustrate, you can imagine the cries of protest to this chapter today. Can you just imagine? Map this on the movement you see out there today. And what would you hear? What? No generational apology? No DNA payment? I can't bear it. I, I absolutely can't bear it. That would be the cry, actually, as you think about what people would say to Ezekiel 18. God's already anticipated this. Look at verse 19. God says, yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? You know, sometimes you just have to pause and recognize our God is unbelievably good. He, he has diagnosed this problem thousands of years ago. Look at what he says. You say, and you could map this to people in the streets today, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? Every march has that. Suffer. Why should we not demand a corporate confession for what our fathers did? It certainly sounds good though, doesn't it? I mean, it sounds really good. In fact, if we're not careful, beloved, it even feels right. Have you been there? Have you felt a tinge of, that's right, I think. Because there's a wrong that I, if we're not careful, we can get pulled into it, right? It just sounds right. And we can even, if we're really not careful, beloved, think that there's something you need to do because of the sins of the fathers. However, God has a reply. That's what we want to hear, God. Continue in verse 19. God explains, when the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. So clear. That is individual action, individual justice, individual responsibility. I don't need to tell you this morning, I pray at this point, it just makes perfect sense. Does it not? It makes absolutely perfect sense. It's one-to-one. -one. God expands and makes this clear. Look at verse 20. He says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. The righteousness of the righteous is rightly on the righteous. The wickedness of the wicked is rightly on the wicked. And that's what, of course, you would expect. That's how, by the way, our court of law operates today, is it not? I gave you the illustration before. That's how all courts operate. Did you do it? You pay for it. That is precisely because in the court of law, it's a standard of justice of our Lord, and he's explaining it plainly. Now, we could end here. God could end the explanation there. In one sense, for all of us logical thinkers, we'd say, okay, there's enough. The wicked have to pay for it. We totally get it. We made one. In one sense, I want you to think with me at verse 20, this chapter could end and we would still not be able to protest, right? It could just end and God has every right to say, you did it, you pay for it. And I want you to know for some other cults, systems and religions, it does stop right here. Get it all done now. As Jeremy was telling us this past week, get it all done in this life, tidy it up, get it done, all the justice, cram and pack it in, right? And that's where it ends. You just got to keep paying the price. However, however, with the one true God, it does not end there. This is justice. It's biblical justice, but it is not the end. We continue in verse 21. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty, 
and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. God says that a wicked person is not bound to his wickedness forever. That's incredible. He's not bound. God says if that wicked person, see it, acknowledges his wickedness and turns from it. God says if that wicked one turns and embraces righteousness, what? He will live. He will live. That's right. They need only turn and repent of their own wickedness. And God says, verse 22, none of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. Wow. You mean to tell me that wicked son, that wicked one, it's not determined already? I mean, look at his circumstance. Look at his neighborhood. That one, look at his parents. Look at the influences. That one who learns wickedness and does wickedness, practices wickedness, are you telling me he has a way out? Really? I thought the end was determined by the, the upbringing. You mean the circumstances don't determine the end? That any wicked person can look at wickedness and say, I don't want to do that and turn and live? Is that what you're telling me? That's what God says. Look at what God says in verse 23. I mean, it can't be clearer. And not only I want you to get a glimpse of the heart of God. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Hear it again, beloved. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord God. But rather, here's the desire of God. That he should turn from his way and live. For some, looking at that verse and hearing that, it challenges your thinking on the Old Testament, right? You've heard it, the Old Testament God, you know, big beard, lightning bolt fingers, just waiting to judge people and smite them. That's a caricature, but it's not the character of God. That is not who your God is. Embedded in the middle of the Old Testament is this. I desire none to perish, God says. I desire none to perish. That's your God, Bene benevolent God, merciful God. The eternal God who never changes says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. That's right. God desires that none should perish in their wickedness. Amazingly, I mean, it's only because of our depravity. Amazingly, there's still a protest to that sentiment. I mean, can you imagine? Hope offered, a way out, unbind the chains, so to speak. But we've got a protest for that. God says, look at verse 25. Yet you say, this is God turning to us, the way of the Lord is not just. You see what's going on here? Wait a minute, he led a wicked life and he's just going to let him off the hook? You're not just, God. You're not just. In other words, that one that turned should not live. Make him pay. Make him pay. And understand your God as we keep reading. Pick it up in verse 25. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Here now. O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Wow, there's an indictment, is it not? God says, humanity, is it not your ways that are not just? You call me unjust. Verse 26, when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he's committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because, because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, this is the protest, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is not your ways that are not just? God indicts again. A protesting humanity calling God, the God of all creation, the author of justice, saying, you're not just. And that tells you who really wants to define justice, doesn't it? Who really wants to define justice? God says, you want to talk about injustice, you are the ones guilty of that. And Westman, I ask you this morning, God is exactly right. Is there a greater injustice than generational punishment? Could there be a greater injustice than that? I mean, punishing the children. And as we see in these generations, maybe the righteous children that cling to righteousness. You come down and say, I'm going to punish you for what your daddy did. Could there be a greater injustice than that? 
declaring judgment on one generation for something. Here it is. Here it is. Declaring judgment on a generation for something they didn't do. What could be more unjust than that? And that's precisely what God is saying in Ezekiel 18. God says, you call me unjust. Look at what you're doing. You are carrying out the miscarriage of justice. In Westmount, that let B pay for A mentality would never stand for a moment in a court of law today. Yet, why are so many getting behind it? Why? Everyone has a meme and a like to this movement, right? I wonder often, not even thinking about what they're doing. That, that thinking is not justice. Look at what the text says. Look at what God says. It's injustice. God says it right here. In spite of the protests of his people, just missing it, crying their own justice. God says this by way of a final word. Look at verse 30. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord. Wow. Here's the indictment. I will judge you. A declaration, not just a house of Israel thing, by the way. This isn't just a wicked Old Testament people judged. I want you to hear the New Testament for you and I. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Every one of us. We all will face judgment. Israelite, Gentile, black or white, man or woman, everyone will be judged by God. It's inevitable. It's coming. The word of God can't be clear, and it is logical. Right? For you apologists out there that love apologetics, is that not the most logical thing? A creator God creates a people to live a certain way. They rebel. Does that not demand justice? That's what will happen. That declaration from God should, should send shivers up our spines. Because that's true justice. God says, I will judge you, every single one of you, everyone held accountable and responsible. God says, I will not look at your father doesn't matter what he's done. God says, I will not look at your son, regardless of what he has done. God says, I will look at you. And of course, that begs the question this morning, are you ready for that? You will face judgment. Are you ready for the judgment? Are you, friend, ready to face your creator? Are you ready to face your creator? Are you ready for that true justice? I mean, you can dig all you want on the sins of the fathers. New stuff, old stuff, I'm sure there's lots there. But what about your stuff? Your personal, individual stuff. You know, that reel that would go on in your head that you don't want anyone to see. What about your stuff? Not the stuff of the group, that group or whatever you identify with or however you identify. No, you alone, your sin. You are crying for justice, but are you prepared to face justice? You can cry, no justice, no peace. And yes, justice is needed for others. There's no doubt. No one will disagree with that. Justice is needed. However, right now, friend, I want you to know you do not want justice for yourself. You don't want it. Because if you were to die tonight, you would get all the justice that you've asked for. And listen to me, in that justice, there would be no peace. There'd be no peace. In fact, it would be hell itself if you get the justice you really want. That is scary, isn't it? For all of us and our demands for justice. We need to think before we demand justice. So is that it? Just end? Let's go have lunch? No. No, it isn't. God has one final word. And Westmount, hear me today. This is your only hope. What God is about to say, this is your only hope. There is no other hope. And it's glorious news. Verse 30. Therefore, I will judge you. O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways declares the Lord. Then this, repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. In other words, there's a way to not face that end. 
Verse 31, cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Look at that, church. Turn and live. God has no pleasure in the death of anyone. God desires. God desires that none would face that end that they actually deserve. Do you see that? God doesn't desire, even though you are do it, every one of us, God says, I don't desire it. I don't desire that end. God desires none of our sons to pay the price for the sins of our fathers. And that is precisely why he sent his own son. That's why he sent his own son, to bear the price, to bear those sins of those of all time, of every generation, specifically those sins of the ones that would turn and live. 2 Corinthians 5.21, to those that would turn, God says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That means those that turn, those that turn on that day, beloved, hear it, hear it. God does not look at you. He looks at his own son in your place. Amazing. And he looks at his son on behalf of all of those that would turn and live. And let me tell you what that is. That is corporate justice. One man standing in the place for his church. That's the only type of corporate justice that you want. And the only type of corporate justice that's truly possible. The sinless son paying the price for the many. Bringing many sons to glory. How is that? Corporate justice. Perfect blood from the Son shed for the sons that would turn and live. That would be the blood of Jesus, the only Savior, shedding his blood for the church. The sinless dying for his sinful. The perfect Son, the Christ, standing in the place of those that would turn from their wickedness and live. For those that turn, which can be you today, Righteousness is reckoned through Christ. We do not pay those that turn. And that, I would submit to you, church, is the only justice that brings true peace. For all of us today, your sins will be paid for. I said this last week, but it bears repeating again. Not by your father, not by your son. Your sins will be paid for, and it's by no generation in your lineage. Certainly not those coming after you. But as we repeated a number of times, your sins will be paid for either by you, personally, individually, and justly, or your sins can be paid by God's Son, corporately, along with the sins of all those who also would turn from their wickedness and live. So what of you? What of you? Hear the word of the Lord one last time. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live.